Welcome back, Brew Theology listeners, to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. We have Pam Eisenbaum back, part two. The great thing about hanging with Pam is that you press record and you just keep talking. You just keep asking questions. And the great thing about her is not just that we get to do that, is that she enjoys it. This is an academic nerd, a theology nerd, who loves to hang out with people. That's Sometimes that's kind of rare. Like if you listen to maybe other podcasts or if you've been to seminary, you know what I'm talking about, and you hang out with some professors and academics, no offense, because you're not all like that. I don't want to put you all in the same category, but there's a rarity that you will find someone like Pam who's just a badass to hang out with. So I hope you enjoy this episode as you have the last four episodes that we've had with Pam. Go back to the part about, uh, I think it's episode 64, 5 and 6, 64, 65, and 66, when we, we talk about the Bible with her. Great episodes. Also, the last episode, episode 68, we start this conversation about Paul. This is part two. Thanks to Janelle. Thanks to Dan. Thank you, Christina. And thank you, Jeff, for hanging out, being friends, brewing theology, and doing this amazing thing that we do every single week in the pubs. If you're listening right now, and you want to do something like this, you can go to brewtheology.org, find out a different way in which you might be a partner, or you want to be a sponsor, you can do that too. We want to we want to see these chapters pop up around the nation, and speaking of, there's a new chapter launching in Atlanta, hot Atlanta, they say, so uh, that's cool. We got uh, Chaz up in Winston-Salem, he's going to get cranking soon this month, Jacksonville is rocking, Jersey is rocking, man. We're going to have uh, Mark up in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. He's going to get this going in late spring, early summer. Also in Canton, Ohio. That is that is a coming soon. And if you want to know what's happening uh, just in the rest of the world, guess what? Brew Theology is happening. We just want to help you create these spaces, give you the curriculum, be a part of this alliance. It's fun. You can also be on this Facebook group with us where you can troubleshoot. And we just share each other's love online. It's all kinds of fun stuff. Uh, when you're thinking, oh, is this like another denomination? Is this like, do I have to sign a creed? No, you don't have to do any of that. Really, there's there's nothing. There's no creed because every every single one of us is very different in how we uh, have theological opinions. And that might change from day to day. And that's the beauty of it. There's no pressure. There's no uh, nobody like the big other looking down to make sure you have the right theology. So that's why we're brewing theology in community because we believe that's the best place to do it to brew it, to deconstruct it, to rebrew it, and all that good stuff. So follow us on the Facebook and the Instagram. Can you imagine if they would have called it the Facebook? They did, and then they changed it. We are at Brew Theology. Also, uh, Twitter, we're Brew underscore Theology. Share the love online. And also, uh, another thing, we're going to Wild Goose Festival again this summer, July 13th through 17th. Make sure you stop by the booth. And get some free stuff and we can talk more about how you can be a partner with us and just do this thing well in your community. All right, guys. uh, I love that we get to do this and I love that you listen. So peace and I will talk to you soon. I was thinking about this recently. Um, I think most of us have assumed because Paul says he was a Pharisee and he persecuted Christians that he persecuted them because he was a Pharisee that somehow those two things actually go together. But I don't think that's true at all. Um, I In Acts, um, he's actually sent by high priest authorities to the church in Damascus, the church, the synagogue in Damascus, whatever it is, because there's a bunch of Christians up there. That in Acts, remember, he has this conversion experience on the road to Damascus. And... So he's on his way there, and so he's on one of his persecuting missions. This is before he has the experience, right? So people often think that the reason for persecution is Pharisaic Judaism, i.e. rabbinic Judaism. They were all pointing their fingers at the Christians because they're not washing their hands correctly and all this kind of stuff. When is, I, I, I mentioned to you my own theory is that Jewish authorities were worried about these Jesus followers because they were a political threat. They were going to get everybody in trouble. I I think that's the most plausible explanation. Um, So I don't think his Phariseeness has anything to do with why he would persecute Christians. I don't know if that... I think that's an oversimplification of merging the idea of the Gospels and Paul's epistles. I mean, because... 
a lot of times in the Gospels, at least the way it's presented in the evangelical church, is you have Jesus on one side and the Pharisees on the other right. side. Yeah. Um, and so there's that blending of, oh, Paul was a Pharisee, so he was one of the enemies, and that's why he was persecuting yes. the church. And so speaking of Pharisees, we, we can jump there right now. But there, it's like saying, I'm, kind of, I'm going to make a comparison now. Well, all evangelicals, well, all yeah, mainline right, right, exactly. Methodists, well, all... But you can't say that. No, I mean, yeah, like Jesus you had can't. issues with certain Pharisees, and I'm sure Paul did too. It's like people within your own family. Like yeah, you can have the absolutely. same ideology, but you're going to butt heads. Right. Absolutely. Right. There are, again, because of the stereotyping and the portrayal of Jesus and the Pharisees, and the Pharisees become the antithesis of Jesus. It's binary. It's like your your daughter's, is it a good day or a bad day? Um, it's sort of, you know, if you're not for us, you're against us kind of thing. You're either, you know, a Pharisee or Jesus. But there are many good Pharisee Pharisees, right? In the you know, or Jews who are portrayed where Jesus takes shelter from them or things happen. There are many good um uh, Jew, in, in the story in Acts, there are many, there are Jewish authorities who are, where you get these real, you know, assholes. And then there are good ones. There are good ones and bad ones. So even in a story where they're trying to, you know, um, it, they're not nuancing all the, uh, you know, individual and complex characters that people are, um, you still get a, a more complex picture than we have now where they're... Um, if you look up the word Pharisee in a dictionary, <laughs> one of the first definitions, may not be the first one, is hypocrite. Be because that's the Christian construction of what a Pharisee was. Um, because they preach, and we all know religious people like this, right? They're people who shake their finger at XYZ for not doing whatever, but they, um, you know, don't give alms to the poor, or whatever the case might be. And so the Pharisees are portrayed because of their legalistic stuff. This is a good segue into this, right? The Pharisees are portrayed as these people who are obsessed with the rules, as we were talking about rules, right? No, 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 you do it this way, not that way. You don't eat food if you haven't washed your hands. You don't, you say this before that. You do this that way, and... Um, as it's portrayed, you care about the letter of the law and not the spirit of the law, right? That's how they're <clears throat> portrayed. And that both Jesus' message and Paul's message is a message of um, flexibility, of tolerance, of grace, right? The first thing I want to say is one reason, Pharisees were very concerned with, I'd put it as practice, like if you think God is God and he gave us the Torah and we want to obey the Torah, you want to be clear on what you're supposed to do because that's faithfulness, right? Um, but the Pharisees also engage in various forms of interpretation, often to liberalize things. So if you remember, Jesus pretty much in the Gospels opposes divorce. Pharisees thought divorce was okay. Um, so under certain circumstances and that sort of thing. And Jesus, what does Jesus say to him? You know, it's not in the Bible. It's not what God intended. It's not, you know, message in Genesis. And the Pharisees are sort of the pragmatists, you know, no, it isn't what God intended, but it happens. What are we going to do kind of thing? And Paul leans more into the latter category, I think. Here's my question in light of our conversation about contemporary stuff is American evangelicalism where grace is, justification by faith and grace are the central pillar. In, in some ways, that is the gospel. That actually, Martin Luther said justification by faith is the gospel. So, but yet you mentioned a moment when you were describing your own experience growing up of an, as an evangelical of the rules, the rule, you can do this, you can't do that. And so, um, Again, I see this in my husband's family as well, this real grace, 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 and this terrible judgmentalism, and the guilt, you know, that people have much more than my experience in Jewish circles. 
I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Did you did you ever feel a tension between the theology of grace and the sort of, um, I guess, way you felt as you're trying to be a good Christian in your community? My experience is that <laughs> this is going to sound harsh, but that evangelicalism is a bait and switch scheme. It's like it's like Jesus's grace is like declaring bankruptcy or like jubilee in a sense we're going to clear you of all your past debt but now you better live you better not rack up more debt on your credit card or now you better learn how to shape up um and i i mean yeah (laughs) the bait and switch thing really felt really strong to me growing up in the evangelical church. I think for me, um, because of the tradition I was raised in, I was raised in the Church of the Nazarene, which is a holiness church. And so always looming beyond your salvation and obedience was this idea of being entirely sanctified. And so up until my late teen years, when I had my sanctification experience, it was just all about trying to do everything right. And unfortunately, my personality type, and I'm a firstborn, um, didn't make that a good experience, Mm -hmm. especially coming out of it later and realizing what all of that had done. Um, Once I was sanctified, I literally remember having the thought as I kneeled down to say the Lord's Prayer that I don't need to do this anymore because I'm I'm sanctified. Hmm. I'm set for life. Like, because in the, the, the part of the country I was in, in my conservative little church, um, entire sanctification was still preached as, uh, I mean, it's basically essentially once saved, always saved. It's the same thing. They would hate it if they heard me say that, but it, it is what it is. But once original sin is removed, then there's no longer temptation that's coming from me, from inside of me. It's just all outward pressure. So if I can just resist that outward pressure, I'm good, like for the rest of my life. I need to keep working to be good and be better and be Jesus in the world, but like I'm clean. Now, a lot of holiness theologians would not like that way of explaining it, but that is what came out of American holiness. And because of where I grew up, that was very much the message that I internalized as someone trying to be the best Nazarene that I could be. Mm-hmm. So grace, it's, this is horrible. Like grace was not something that I personally probably really grasped in a lot of ways because it was all about obedience it was about being the best Christian right. that I could be in my strength, couldn't be proud about it, and couldn't be proud of any of the skills and talents that I had um, because that, that borderlines into sin. Right. And, and none of those things in the end mattered anyway when I received a call into ministry because what I liked and what I cared about and what my dreams were were over at that point because I was called to preach. Now, I wouldn't have said it that way mm-hmm. when that happened. It was an honor, and it was the only way I could interpret the mystical experience that I had at the time. Mm-hmm. Now I see that God just wanted me mm-hmm. and my life, mm-hmm. but I didn't know that then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was trying to live within my framework and my structure and, and, and do all the things the right way. And yep, I probably totally misunderstood our theology but it was all that I knew how to do. Um, and I think grace has come much more for me since leaving. And I, I, do, I do go to a Lutheran church now, and mm-hmm. the idea that we confess what we have done and what we've left undone, mm-hmm. um, that, that phrase used to drive me crazy. Like, I haven't left anything undone. I, I've done it all. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is that I, I'm in these systems and I participate in it every day, and I do have privilege. And so I do need to confess that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's radically trans. I mean, I'm, my holiness people would think that I'm going to hell. Yeah. The people that raised me, the so, people that right. mentored me, the people that t- 
taught me how to be a pastor, that taught me how to be a preacher would have many of them, not all, but many of them would have no problem looking at me and saying, you are a sinner and you are going to hell and you have fallen away and there is no goodness in you. Yeah. And that doesn't to me sound like grace. Yeah, right. I think I'm, I'm trying really hard to think back because I, my experience has been a little different in that I grew up as a military kid, so I went to various non-denominational churches of different flavors, some more charismatic than others. So I was trying to find like a one unifying story that I remember, but I think it came down with that the gift of grace was some form of, well, I guess there's only one form, but penal substitutionary atonement, that the gift of grace was that Jesus somehow took God's place, I mean, uh, your place, right? That God had maybe this wrathful relationship with you and then Jesus came to fix that. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a really clever way of you being both grateful and fearful because if you don't accept that gift, the wrathful God is still behind the loving Jesus yeah. figure. Always. So there's always this... Again, in a very harsh way, it seems like a control scheme of, you know, you got you have to be grateful and do everything you can to keep yourself pure, separated, holy. And interestingly enough, in all the churches that I grew up in within the charismatic world, and I, again, I they were all Spanish-speaking churches. I'm Puerto Rican, and there's a there's an affinity with the Hebrew scriptures and the Latino community. And it can be a good thing Mm -hmm. in a way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it can be a bad thing because if you're not informed, you can twist it around and say whatever you want. And what often happens is that you end up with a, a legalistic form of, you know, evangelicalism that's very fundamentalist. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I remember like the first churches that we went to, Women had to have their hair up. They wore long skirts. Um, they, it was a Pentecostal tradition, so they still preached, but they had to look a certain way, and it was very odd. You know, First Timothy, <laughs> probably right, and yeah. which is but, where Paul says he's a chief of sinners. Yeah. I, I looked it up earlier. Like, didn't Paul say that? Uh, mm-hmm. First Timothy yes. again. There again. we go. Yeah. Wait, did he? Is that a disputed or non-disputed? Now I'm confused. It's a disputed because I had said yeah. earlier, Paul never calls himself a sinner, and Ryan's thinking, yes, he does. Well, well the, in my mind, I was like, this he said he's the sinner of sinners or chief sinners. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, because we, we all grew up with that. I'm like, wait, did yeah. he say that? <laughs> so, back to the grace thing. It's that's where that tension was, and I think um, church leadership. Uh, was very okay with you being in that tension of grace and, and fear because it keeps people in line. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is all in the late nineties, early two thousand. So people thought the end of the world is going to come, which yeah. is a tie into Paul perhaps. Yeah. And there is this follow the rules. Jesus could come at any moment. You got to be ready, yeah. get your shit yeah. together. And you know, you just, it, there you was, just got left behind. Yeah, there's... Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that too. But I've always talked bad. There's like that escapist theology of Jesus is going to come back and then take us somewhere else because yeah. this is all garbage. And then a mix of of being secluded from culture and society, right? Because Jesus could come at any moment. Let's keep ourselves pure. Don't go to the movies. Don't do this. Don't do that. And again, that's like an extreme form and not every church that I went to was like that, but mm-hmm. that's kind of one one example. It doesn't seem very grace-filled, yeah. right? Right, right. <laughs> so then we have this grace-filled Paul already who had the Torah, which was grace. And now he has this like awakening, non-conversion of the resurrected Christ. And now the <laughs> clock is ticking. Yeah. Speaking of end of the world, which Dan referred to, he, he kind of felt like things were happening quickly, this apocalyptic. Yes, right. And that changed everything. Right. Which changed his right. mission. So can you talk right. about that? Yeah. Let me see if I can even tie in with what we were just talking about. I think Paul, the way I view Paul, is he wants to share the message of grace and Judaism with Gentiles. So it's not like this either or, but bringing insights, I think he 
felt he had and knew as a Jew to non-Jews, right? Because the end of the world is coming, and there is going to be, for Paul, a final judgment. Uh, I, I think I mentioned the other night, the whole purpose of resurrection is just so everybody can get up and stand before their, you know, judge and maker and account, give an account of themselves. And so, so Paul has a vision of that. That's what he's expecting. Pharisees believe, there's a lot of same beliefs in Pharisaic Judaism and followers of Jesus. People forget this too. The Pharisees and Jesus followers have more in common with each other in many ways than with other sects of Judaism, which is like belief in life after death and resurrection of the dead. So the end of the world is coming. And the reason Paul thinks the end of the world is coming is because he's just had some sort of experience of a resurrected Jesus. And as I mentioned the other night, resurrection isn't something that happens one at a time right after you die. <laughs> zombies walking around. Um, but rather collectively at the end of time. And so, so Paul makes the inference if he sees one resurrected guy this is the beginning of the general resurrection, and the general resurrection happens to anticipate the final judgment. So he thinks the end of the world is coming. So the urgency in going to Gentiles is he understands Jesus as just sort of God having enacted this grace so that non-Jews, in spite of not having the Torah, can be redeemed or reconciled to the God who created them. I mentioned this too, that I, I think Paul has... Um, for a guy living when he did, um, about as pluralistic a theology as one could have. I hate to have the arrogance of living in my time frame that we know everything now and they didn't then. But we, we do, just because of the contact we have with varieties of people, I think we, we understand, um, tolerance isn't the right word I want it. We understand, um, multiculturalism in a way that he didn't have a language for yet. But I think Paul fundamentally was so disturbed by the idea that the God who created all the people of the world would then kill off most of them at the final judgment. I think that was just like a non sequitur for Paul. Be like, why would the God, I mean, that's often my theological, you know, understanding. Why would the God who created everything and all the people then destroy most of them, right, and condemn them to hell. So, um, so I think Paul, but but people are pretty crummy as well. <laughs> he knows that, and they've been worshiping other gods, and it has to be fixed. And so Jesus brings this act of grace through atonement, and he does know atonement. You know, atonement theology begins with Paul, and then it gets further developed in things like the Epistle to the Hebrews and elsewhere, but he already has this, um, this idea. And it's, a, um, the word that we use grace in, in Greek, that's a very good translation, but it's also just the ordinary word for a gift. Like I can give you a charis, you know, it's just something you get that you didn't earn and you don't deserve, you did nothing to deserve it. it it's very simple idea at one level, very simple idea. Can you talk about atonement as you just brought it up, how there's the way of understanding atonement through the eyes of the of Judaism and then Christianity. Of course, there's many theories of atonement. What would atonement have looked like in the first century? And what do you think Paul thought about it? He only, yeah. So, and Paul speaks so vaguely in most cases when he speaks about it, like Jesus died for our sins. Well, it's it's not exactly clear, you know, how that work that you know gets worked out by later theologians. In antiquity, this would have been a practice common to Jews and pretty much every other religion in the Mediterranean basin in the Roman Greco-Roman world. Um, you offer a sacrifice. <laughs> Why people and this sacrifice is so widely practiced. There's fascinating questions about why human beings thought they could atone for their sins by slaughtering an innocent animal, but it is a widely shared 
belief among num numerous cultures. So, so the act, so you make the offering, but of course you also have to repent. But if you notice, if you read Leviticus, where there are all sorts of different sort of atoning sacrifices and they're sort of different categories, unintentional sins, intentional sins, collective sins, individual sins, that sort of stuff. Um, there's not a whole lot of talk about repentance. There's, it's, it's almost a sort of, dare I use the word primitive, a more sort of transactional thing. I offer these sacrifices and um, that's what we do because we screw up every year and, and we need to recognize that. The idea of repentance gets talked about more and more, right? In the prophetic lit, it's not Jesus who comes up with that idea, right? The prophets talk about God doesn't want your sacrifices. What he really wants is for you to repent. So that becomes absolutely essential in Jewish thought, right? We, we go through this long, these 10 days, the days of awe, it's called, of, uh, or 10 days of repentance from Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. It, it's like Paul thinks because Jews have just been making these sacrifices and they're in the covenant and they're doing their thing each year, they're sort of all caught up. There's no kind of uh, debt that's been accumulating. Whereas in the beginning of Romans, he makes it sound like, um, and I think he really thinks this, there's sort of Gentiles need to get caught up and they need to get caught up in a real hurry because the judgment is coming. And so Jesus is this sh shortcut. I need, I need to find less colloquial ways to describe it. But, and that's why it's an act of grace. So, um, and it's also God that intervenes. What, what's most extraordinary about it is that Paul thinks God can do it on someone else's behalf. Right? In other words, God, God self-initiates the whole thing. So, um, you know, normally it's, you know, I have to take the step to atone for my sins. So, yeah, does that answer? I don't know if that really got at the question, but it was a, an, an attempt. At that, on that last point, as God taking the step, do you think that's Paul again being thoroughly Jewish in... My understanding of the covenant with Abraham and with the people of Israel is that God took the initiative. Is that correct? Yes, because God calls Abraham. Yeah. So God. So in that sense, so I don't want to make it sound like God never took initiative because God actually does reach out to the people in numerous times. And God goes and finds Abraham and calls him, and that's how that whole relationship begins. But what I meant was is literally in the sort of mechanics of atonement, it's as if, if, if we think about this in really overly literalistic ways, if, if God sacrifices God's son to atone for the sins of others, then it's God who performs the atonement, not the human being. So that's what's, it, so I was talking about it in very mechanistic ways. But yes, God, the idea that God reaches out to people, I think that's what Paul thinks He's God's voice when he preaches to the Gentiles. God's reaching out to the Gentiles to give them this second chance. So this is why evangelicals, I, I'm, I'm trying to like think like an evangelical more. I mean, it's in, in it's still in me. But it's so hard. No, for me, it's not that hard. But when I hear you say that, I think of my former evangelical self and in some sense, my current self. I can hear you saying God initiating the atonement as, okay, God initiated the atonement and chose Jesus as the pound of flesh required for the reconciliation of this new people group into the covenant. Mm -hmm. So is that what you're trying to say or? I'm not sure I understand what you most want to know. Um, in that, in the analogy of of God initiating an atoning sacrifice, mm -hmm. what is the sacrifice? Mm -hmm. Would it be Jesus, his death, or would it be 
something else that Paul maybe doesn't talk about or, you know, what's that connection? I realize how misleading I was in some ways because I was conflating the way atonement theology develops in Christianity, speaking really generically and superficially, and for Paul. So I think Paul thinks there is a kind of substitutionary atonement. But I don't think Paul literally sits down and goes, you know, God thinks thought it would be a really good idea to take a human being, shown, you know, like this is a model of behavior. I'm going to sacrifice my only son. I think that Paul thinks that Jesus is obedient unto death. In other words, that Jesus actually, his very act of faith is the real gift. Um, but but because Paul, of course, thinks God's behind everything, um, that it's sort of worked out as you can think of it as all God's plan. But I think Paul thinks that this atonement is not, that Jesus' death isn't just like killing um, uh, killing the bulls on Yom Kippur. Um, it's more like, it's more analogous to, to a martyrdom, that kind of sacrifice, which is sort of substitutionary, but not literally as transactional as the way people who offered animal sacrifices thought they had now been purified. It's a real transactional kind of thing in that model. Yeah. So I, I have a question because, uh, and I have to back up a little bit, um, sometimes evangelical pastors, I think, make things up. <laughs> um, they just make up these theories and they say, oh, this was an ancient Jewish theory and here you go. Um, and then it ha seems to have no actual basis in fact. Um, but I, I do remember in the evangelical church um, hearing from a pastor at some point that there was almost like within Jewish thought, almost like a hierarchy of atonement. Like a dove covered this much, a sheep covered this much, a bull covered this much. If it was like an innocent human, it would cover this much. If it was like an innocent prophet, it would cover this much. But then like the, the pinnacle of this hierarchy as he presented it, was that if God himself was sacrificed as an atonement, it would cover everything. everything. Yeah. And is there, is that and, true? And this person thought false? this was Jewish theology. That's just, what just, he said, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, he's not completely wrong in that um, Leviticus does map out these various sac these different kinds of sacrifices and it's sometimes hard to discern the pattern of how valuable an animal is in relation to the sins but you could certainly um it it wouldn't be consistent but yeah for for i don't think i didn't look up leviticus if it uses the language of lesser and greater sins it does have different kinds of sins, including unintentional sins. I don't know if Christians, if there is such a thing for Christians, unintentional sins, but, um, but sins of omission and commission, I yeah, think is yeah, the I guess that's right. Okay. Language. So, but, but often those different animals and things are, um, like you're supposed to offer a, a cow, but if you cannot afford one, you can offer a dove. Mm -hmm. So often it, it's that it has to do with the economic ability of the sacrificer and how great a sacrifice it is for that sacrificer rather than um, sort of a, an, a, an absolutist scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But does the tradition go beyond animal sacrifice, I guess, or the, the theology, does it go beyond animal sacrifice to incorporate that idea of, in some sense, human and maybe divine sacrifice? Um, so the idea that God would want human sacrifice in Judaism is just abhorrent. 
Now, in some ways, they made much of that is it, uh, um, it, 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 to make an anti-Christian point. Like, if you look, you know. So there's sort of like Christians think that God asks us to sacrifice people, whereas in the Bible, Hebrew Bible, we know that God makes a point of saying, you, you don't do as Moloch did. We don't sacrifice. Then there's the very interesting story of Abraham and Isaac. There's even a verse in Exodus where it says, God says, you owe me your firstborn. But in lieu of, I, I'm not going to ask you to <laughs> sacrifice. You, you sacrifice a, um, a, a sheep. There's a great book by a Jewish biblical scholar, theologian um, named John Levinson called um, Persistence in the Creation of Evil that um, deals with that. And, um, and another book he wrote called The Death and Resurrection of the Beloved Son in Judaism and Christianity. Those are two really good books. Um, so, I, so generally, the, there is no idea in contemporary Judaism of substitutionary atonement. And by the way, most of the sacrifices are sacrifices for reasons that have nothing to do with sin, right? So when Aaron gets ordained, there's a lot of animals lose their lives. When, um, you know, everything, the temple it's gets feast, dedicated. Right? Yeah. I would hope they'd there cook them right after. There are just mass slaughterings. I mean, I just think, whoever came up with this logic, like, let's celebrate by, you know, I mean, it's just running in blood. The temple would have just been such a bloody, bloody place. Stinky, horrible place. Um, a lot of flies. <laughs> I mean, really. So you sacrifice there. Um, I've written a little bit about this too. In theories of religion, sacrifice is a big topic because, in some sense, it doesn't make any sense, right? But um, but there are different kinds of sacrifices, and you know, um, yeah. So there there are. Um, it's not exciting reading, but there are 12 chapters of different kinds of sacrifices described in Leviticus. Um, what's your... Because I'm curious, it, it ties in with justification by faith and with atonement and sacrifice and all this. Um, so I, I wrote a quick question here as we were talking and I wanted to write it down because then I'd forget. And I wrote, if Paul did not have the gospels to reference... Um, what did he envision participation in the faithfulness of Christ to look like, to be? Right? Cause, you yeah, know, it's a great question. Uh, some yeah, some Christians, mind-blowing question. Some it? Christians see the Sermon on the Mount as the central, you know, ethos of Christianity or the ethic or something like that, right? The way to live. Uh you could pick other other parts, but they usually come from Jesus or Jesus' portrayal in the Gospels. And if Paul didn't have that, what is he calling the Gentiles? And I get some indirect things from Paul's letters. You know, he clearly doesn't like when they're doing the Eucharist for rich people to be mm -hmm. getting drunk and mm -hmm. eating all this food. And so there's kind of this general like love one another, mm -hmm. which I guess could tie back to Jesus. Mm -hmm. But I'm answering my own question. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Oh, it's good. I do that a lot too. So yeah. It's okay, Dan. Uh, but it was still an honest question, I think. Um, not a setup. Um, I, uh, the, I mean, that's such a, such a great question. So Paul uses the language of, um, of Jesus' obedience, obedience unto death. And so I think that but he doesn't spend a lot of time telling us the story of Jesus' persecution and what, the whole passion narrative. I assume, though, that, that people were talking about that, right? Though, so he doesn't have a written source, but the story, kind of like in the, wake of, in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King, before anybody's written the definitive account of what happened, um, it's a shared kind of, horrific thing that's happened that people are trying to make meaning out, you know, grieve and make meaning out of. So I imagine they're talking about the death and resurrect. I mean, that just seems to be 
the events around that, um, the closest we get to sort of a, the, what I'd call like, it's like the nucleus of the gospel is in the 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul lists, you know, sort of this happened and that happened and that it's like, you know, three verses, four verses. Um, uh, and that kind of summarizes it for him. But I think that what he's focused on is that the death was meaningful um, and that that death, that act of obedience, that act of faithfulness, um, so much so that um, he's raised and God's going to initiate the end of the world. By the way, um, one of my most favorite scholars, and if you've read this book, you'll you, you know how much I admire this um, professor. He recently retired, Brown University. And he has he wrote this great book on Romans. I think it's like the most important book on Romans in the second half of the 20th century. And I'm really influenced by his work. And in the middle of this book, his Stan Stowers, S-T-O-W-E-R-S. And in the middle of that book, he does something that's unheard of in a scholarly book. He's, he, he has like this timeout... <laughs> Because he says, I want to try to explain something that the sources don't allow me to explain. So I'm going to engage in an um, act of imagination to fill in a kind of causal link, you know, as a plausible kind of thing. And he says, I think that Paul thinks that God didn't necessarily plan it out all this way. That in fact that God's plan was for Jesus to be the kind of Messiah that was expected. In other words, that was going to bring the kingdom back. He would be the new king of David, vanquish Israel's enemies, and all that kind of stuff. But, in fact, he turned out to be the sort of inverse of that. The ultimate um, act of, of humility and sacrifice for others rather than triumph over them, and that as a result of this profound human act of faith that God witnesses in Jesus, God sort of changes his mind about how he's going to do things, and instead of killing all the Gentiles, he's going to follow Jesus' lead and redeem the whole world to himself. Now, and, and then Stan Stowers you know, kind of says, I'm making all this up Right, he says, I'm, I'm filling it. I mean, he has his reasons for this, but um, you know, I love to see if students are paying attention that they get that he has this little let me engage in this flight of fancy because I don't really understand. It, it's sort of like that is the missing piece. Where did this idea come from that Jesus going to death? you know, on the cross is going to redeem the entire world? I mean, it's not like an obvious, like, oh, that's what that must mean. I mean, you just, you know, and even if you thought that's what it meant, convincing anybody else of that just seems, you know, so there there probably is a whole narrative, that's kind of theological narrative underlying there that is unexpressed in Paul's letters, but that was orally, was... People doing this in their own right, they meet together and they have deep, meaningful conversation. And that's their only real resource. And other than some liturgical practices that have already emerged, right? There are things they say at baptism. We know there are little formulas in Paul's work, but there's no written gospel. And once you get the gospels, then you get a real narrativized theology. So perhaps he had shared that narrative with the various churches before or they were aware of it and he's more kind of reminding them or calling them to greater faithfulness and trusting that if you live in the pattern of this Jesus that you too will be raised because this thing's coming soon yeah that's right again I'm doing my own imaginative thing as well and I also think Paul thinks that faith is um People think I'm trivializing Paul when I say this, but I, I often think that the word faith for Paul, pistis in Greek, I, I sometimes think that the English word hope would capture better what Paul means. And More than faithfulness? Yeah, well, because I think 
let me put it this way. I think that Paul thinks that faith is believing God's promises even when all the evidence, all the evidence is to the contrary in front of you, you know, sort of um, if you're starving to death and you say, give us this day our daily bread or whatever the case might be, I think Paul is saying, if God promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations, I know the world looks completely diverse and divided and um, fragmented, but I'm going to have faith in God's promises, and I'm going to act as in accordance with those promises coming true. And if we act that way, then it will come true. That's a okay. sort of fairy tale way to say the whole thing. I'm sorry, but yeah. But the emphasis. I'm not there, a the- professional theologian. Is no, I like this because the emphasis is, and this is kind of a challenge to like the evangelical thinking, maybe perhaps that the the emphasis is on the acting that trust enacting mm-hmm. that enacting trust, that trust right? and as if this thing is true or that in like through our faithfulness just like jesus that this can actually become true even if it's not or we can't see that it's true that's right whereas i think in in america it's more about intellectual you know accept jesus as your lord and belief. savior yeah belief. right right that that faith is often contrasted faith means belief and and is like what you do is mind and then acting that's works and that's bad whereas i certainly in you know in biblical religion in judaism as it emerges certainly and absolutely for paul that's a crazy way you wouldn't if you have faith you act on that faith i mean it follows otherwise what things just exist in your mind and are of no consequence i think paul would find that a really peculiar way of thinking but i but we have done it i think partly because god i, I want to put this down um um <laughs> Because I can't talk with my hands as much, I think, is the we, problem. We need to get some Justin Timberlake. I'm going to knock things over. Okay, this is empty now, so I can move it. I'm, I'm like always worried I'm going to knock things over. Um, so um, stop me if I've told this story in the last podcast. <laughs> it's terrible. I'm repeating myself already. But um, there's this wonderful mystical belief in Judaism that if... Every Jew just on one Friday night, every Jew just on earth at that one particular Friday night lit the Shabbat candles. The Messiah would come. The Messianic age would come. The lion would lie down with the lamb. That, that's all that really that if that much effort that it's really shouldn't be that hard. And so often as I say to Mark, so sometimes we're out on Friday night, but I sort of feel guilty because I don't want to be personally responsible for holding up world peace. <laughs> um, so, but the the point is, in my everyday cynical, skeptical self, I'd be like, there's nothing I can do to achieve world peace, right? There's really, I mean, I sort of do my best to make the individual's lives, individuals I come in contact with may make their lives a little better, but when you try to think on a scale of, you know, what are there now, 7 billion people in the world? So, but there's a way in which, you know, and as I said earlier, I'm not even that mystical of a person or whatever, but that little, you know, mystical tidbit inspires me to remember to enact something. And not just lighting the Shabbat candles, but as a principle, right? So, um, yeah, getting back to Paul. <laughs> so I think for Paul, he thinks he's, I mean, think about how big a thing he was trying to do. He wanted to evangelize the world. I mean, maybe evangelize isn't the right word because now it has all these other connotations. But he thinks he's bringing people to God and he's in a hurry. And the world is crazy fragmented. There are people trying to kill him and he's, you know, so, but he proceeds on. And even when he thinks things have been delayed, 
Like Paul actually thinks he's gotten the calendar a little bit wrong, or by the time he writes Romans, he he implies, really he does more than imply, when he says, you know, I kind of thought things were going to culminate by now, and they haven't, but look, it's all for the good, because now there's more time for people to get this message of grace, so it's probably a good thing, he says, uh, but it's sort of, you know, a adaptive theology um, in good that's good pharisaic thinking as well so that's why justification by faith which is it it gets contrasted with works as if it were just belief that's the other point i want to make one problem is very much i think a problem with us modern folks and not just like a jewish and a christian thing and that is when people say today i believe in god or i believe in jesus that that affirmation is generally seen as over against skepticism because we live in a, a scientific world where we doubt these things, right? It's a it's a claim against doubt. I believe it's a you know against a sort of mental conviction kind of thing that I have this mental conviction against a doubtful way of looking at the world. In antiquity, people didn't doubt that um, other beings existed. Like there weren't a lot of arguments <laughs> about um, whether God slash gods exists at all. The arguments are about how you um, faithfully worship that God, whose God is better, um, how you handle the gods, that how to interpret the oracles and messages. But people didn't argue a lot. Well, I think God exists. I don't, you know, I'm an atheist. You know what, an atheist, th that language exists in ancient Rome, but it means you just don't believe in the Roman gods. So Jews were atheists. So it's were very Christians, confusing. The original yes, that's right. Atheists. Exactly. <laughs> right. But Paul wasn't a Christian, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> he was an atheist. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Because that leaves it ambiguous. He could have been a Christian atheist or a Jewish. Yeah, that's right. I have two translations, and y'all can guess which one's Pam's and which one's not. <laughs> Romans 3, 21 to 22. But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's the first one. Second one. Now, however, apart from the Torah, the righteousness of God has been made manifest to which the same Torah and the prophets gave witness, namely the righteousness of God, which has come through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who are faithful. Now it comes all back around full circle. I think we all know which one is Pam's. Yeah. So, yeah, this, uh, which it starts with this, this, uh, Paul making sure that, that he's, well, he is, he's, he's a monotheist, right? Mm -hmm. Um, which is important in that. So this this of versus an in. So can you just break down the of and the in and uh, bring us home with faith this <laughs> faith in Jesus, faithfulness of Jesus, righteousness of God, righteousness in God, which is a no translation. Right. That's right. Right. Um, Luther had to do sort of mental gymnastics to work out how this could all work, but. Um, grammatically, because he was a great exegete as well. Luther did pay careful attention to the text. And, um, okay, so if you think, so when we say justification by faith, we're sort of lopping off faith in what, of what, for what, it just sort of, it's a shorthand. We kind of assume we all know what we're talking about. And generally, I think for Christian, that means faith in Jesus, Right to say some might say faith in God, but that's kind of not particular enough. Certainly for an evangelical Christian, that's not particular enough. Right, it has to be faith in Jesus. So in the Greek, it's always ambiguous. Right, there's as I say, so there's no preposition between the word faith and the word Jesus. It just because in Greek we don't need a preposition there. Um, because it's a case language, and for anyone listening who's studied German or Latin, you know exactly what I mean. But if you if you haven't if you've only studied Romance languages, for example, you you wouldn't know this. But in case languages, you uh, words can change their endings 
to indicate what part of speech they are in a sentence, whereas in English or French and Spanish, we generally do that by word order and context. So when we have the word faith, we have two nouns here, faith and Christ in what grammarians would call apposition to each other. We then have to figure out their relationship. And the second one, Jesus or Christ, sometimes Paul says Jesus, sometimes Christ, sometimes both of them, um, is in the genitive case. And the genitive case is most often possession. And so in English, it usually gets rendered with the preposition of. I'm not going to even remember the example I use in my book. I try to use some commonplace example like, you know, the love of grandma. Um, I, I need to finish that sentence for you to know the whether I mean grandma. The love of gran- the San Antonio Spurs. The love of the San Antonio Spurs. Okay, here we go. So in that one, that's what we call, or most likely, um, if, if, if I say I have such love of the San Antonio Spurs, it's pretty clear that I mean um, the Spurs are the object of my love. So grammatically in Greek, we call that an objective genitive. Actually, grammarians and linguists in English, it, it's the same thing. We just use a preposition to, to make, work it out. But then there's something called a subjective genitive. So um, I don't know if how to work it out in the context of the spurs. Um, but if I talked about... You have the love of your husband. Right. That's right. Thank you. So the love of my husband, I need... You know, in that one, when I, I talk about how I, you know, um, am so appreciative... Uh, of the love of my husband, you know, I'm talking about my husband isn't the object of my love in that sentence, but but the subject of my love, right? So the whole question comes down to, um, are we talking about, is when it says pistis Christu, are we talking about faith where Jesus is the object of that faith or faith where Jesus is the subject of that faith? So one is justified by Jesus' faith not by the believer's own faith in Jesus. It's a huge theological difference. Um, I really hope that when the NRSV is translated next, that they use the language of of, because it would at the very least retain the ambiguity because it is ambiguous. And sometimes these things are ambiguous and you Try, you tell from the context. And sometimes, you know, especially if you're if not speaking your first language and you're confused, you might not know what people mean exactly. And you'd ask for clarification. So this is one of those things where we have to try to figure out what is it Paul most likely meant. And it may well be a combination of the two because I certainly think that Paul thinks um, you should be faithful like Jesus and have faith in that Jesus act of faith is meaningful. So I, I, again, I partly overstate the case there to point out one, just the complexity and subtlety of it. And that I think the act of salvation is Jesus's own act, not your act, Dan, or Ryan's act, but what Jesus accomplished made all the difference. Right. Well, and I think it it's a it radically transforms things to say that Jesus had enough faith in us mm-hmm. to sacrifice his life for us mm-hmm. because we were worth it. Like mm-hmm. he had faith in humanity. Mm-hmm. That's pretty powerful. And I yeah. think we miss that in the way that we often talk about this Um, because it's all about that I need to have faith in him Mm -hmm. I need to ask him to fix this I need it's all about our interaction Mm -hmm. um, and not it's that's huge in the face of like evangelical outcome negative outcomes what if we had been taught that Jesus had enough faith in you to do this Mm -hmm. That's good. There's an anonymous rabbi, and I'm going to butcher this. And I even said anonymous because I don't even know which one. (laughs) (laughs) Who said the biggest sin isn't that we're teaching people not to believe in God. It's that we're teaching people that God doesn't believe in us. So 
God believes in you. And that's something that, again, like, I mean, from our traditions, we were never told. Yeah. And theologically, for the Christian, it's even more important than that because if Jesus reveals God's character, it means that God also believes in humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Which would then go back to, I mean, it's not that far from Judaism. And Mm -hmm. well, and if you think about it, Stan Stower's little story there to kind of put it in these terms, by the way, he's totally secular guy. And I think this is this lovely theology. Yeah. This little active imagination he's done, but that there's a biblical tradition of human beings changing God's mind. Right. I mean, famously, both Abraham and Moses have an episode where they bargain with God to save people's lives, that God's going to condemn them and they speak. So it's not so crazy to think that Paul or others would think of Jesus as having, you know, saying, well, I could have been a conqueror, but I have a better idea. (laughs) And it could enable us to redeem people rather than, you know, kill half of them. So... All right, there we go. God's love, guys. So, Pam, what uh, what are you working on now? This textbook. Yeah, so um, it's too bad this isn't a call-in show because uh, then people could <laughs> tell me, here's here's what I'd like to see in a book. <laughs> you do Facebook Live. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what would you yeah. most like to see in a book on Paul? By the way, we didn't talk about Gentiles at all I, and his men and oh law. And we missed, so, like, and I was going to say that there's yeah. so much that we did not cover. And even like, so these notes that I have here that are scattered, pages, but that's just like a fraction of the notes I had before that. I highlighted so much from your book. I got to say, shameless plug, Paul was not a Christian, (laughs) subtitled, The Original Message of a Misunderstood Apostle. Go buy it. Not her title. It's not her title. title. But it's the book that you got to get by... Pamela Eisenbaum, either on Amazon, but but if you don't want to do Amazon, some people are like anti-Amazon. Yeah, Where should right. people buy it? Amazon rules the world now, so it I don't does. even know how to answer that question. Just buy um, the book. Just buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> your, right. Well, you'd have to order it. It's not on. They don't keep these things on shelves very long, so um, I doubt it's on too many shelves in bookstores. But um, but Barnes and Noble certainly there are other bookstores that have an online. They still exist. They're still around. They still exist. All right. Well, thanks to everyone. Janelle, Dan, Christina, Jeff. Cheers. Thank you all. Thank you, Pam. Cheers.